this is the second week of our series through Advent, uh, looking at this theme, searching for God, stories of longing, expectation and hope. And last week, uh, Jill uh, spoke to us about Mary. Uh, this morning, it's my task to speak to you about Zachariah, the guy, the man, the priest that we uh, just read about, or Simon just read to us. So we're very fortunate we got a snapshot of what Zachariah looked like. So here he is. Ta-da! That is Zachariah with his son, John the Baptist. As you see, um, uh, photography wasn't very advanced in those days. That's actually uh, from uh, medieval times, and uh, it, uh, it's um, in a building in Jerusalem. There you go. So... That's somebody's guess at what Zachariah looked like and his son, John the Baptist, the son that the story talks about. And if there was more time, you'd read the whole of that uh, chapter, Luke chapter 1, which is fascinating, the story about who Zachariah is. Now, you see from this picture, uh, which is from a uh, church in Jerusalem, that Zachariah and his son both have got huge halos round their heads. You know, father and son team, both with halos. And that's because inside, uh, inside uh, Christianity and inside Islam, both uh, Zachariah and his son, John the Baptist, are considered prophets. And of course, this picture was created after the birth of Islam in Jerusalem. So that's why they, the halo signifies that they are holy prophets, they are saints. You might be interested in this. Inside Islam, there are 25 major prophets, as I'm sure that many of you know. And this is the list. I'm sorry uh, for those of you um, with eyesight as bad as mine that it's impossible to see them. This is the list of the 25 uh, prophets uh, with their Arabic names and they're at the names that we would recognize uh, most closely. And you see the two last prophets are Jesus and Muhammad. But before Jesus and Muhammad, this is uh, chron in chronological order, you get Zechariah and John. It's amazing, isn't it, to be a prophet and then have a son who also gets on the all-time list of 25. Amazing. The other thing you'll notice about this is they are all men. There are no women that make the big, you know, make it onto the, the, uh, the all-time list of, um, uh, of Islamic prophets. But there is a father and son there. We're going to do a bit of a quiz here. There's a, uh, there's a father and son there. Zachariah and John are both there. It's a bit like what we witnessed this week. <laughs> the Bush dynasty, you know, one uh, uh, younger George Bush um, giving a memorial address, moving memorial address to his father. So here's the thing you can do in groups. This is why you don't need to be able to see it all yourself. There's more than one dynasty that makes it onto this list of Islamic prophets. Okay, There's the father and son of Zechariah and John, but in groups, turn to people and work out, are there any more father and son? You know, did this get past? Dynasties don't always do well, by the way. Nepotism is a bad thing. And um, nepotism is a bad thing in our society, and it was a bad thing then. So there's some good ones and some bad ones. With the people around you, spot the, uh, the family groups. Okay. 
So here comes, here comes the big, here comes the big reveal on the family groups. Some good ones and some bad ones. Here they are. Da-dum. There you are. So there's a huge group in. Abraham followed by Lot and Ishmael, both of his sons, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. It got passed on down the family. They all got in there as prophets. What a family that was, bigger than the bushes. And um, then there's David and Solomon. And that father and son prophet relationship, that bit of nepotism didn't work very well at all, did it? because uh, it it went uh, catastrophically wrong and ended up with the split of Israel into uh, two halves. And then you get Zechariah and John. But there's some other close relationships there, like Moses and Aaron were cousins, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And John and Jesus were, of course, cousins. So we're going to explore a little bit of all of that, not because we're into history, but because it impacts the way that we live now. There's a lot to learn from this story. Now, the name Zechariah is a Hebrew name. There it is in Hebrew, and uh, that's the way uh, it's transliterated, Zechariah. And what Zechariah actually means, we give our kids names that we think are going to mean a lot. Do you know, I've got four little grandsons and uh, the parents of those grandsons have each given them a name that they think is packed with meaning and uh, a name that they hope and pray, of course, that their son, their child is going to grow into. This name is going to become what this child is. And this name, Zachariah, means, remember, Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. Remember God. That's what it actually means. Zechariah. Remember God. That's the name he got given. But we also know, all of us, each one of us, that not everyone grows into the name that they've been given. Not every woman who's been called Grace is gracious. Not every person called Joy is joyful. How do we grow into the name that we are? And how do we grow out of the name that we might have been given? I have um, someone, uh, a friend, uh, that was uh, given the name in a different uh, country um, some years ago, Ugly, uh, in Zimbabwe. Because in Zimbabwe, amongst some of the tribal people, you're, you're named after the first thought that comes into your father's head. It's the father, it's the father that names the child, and the father thinks, and the first thought that fills his head when he looks down at the child is the way the child is named. And this child was named Ugly. Uh, if you read uh, my book, uh, which is called Being Human, uh, yeah, I tell the story more fully in the book. And what happened was an Oasis team who were working in Harare and came across this child and worked with the child and created new hope and a new future for the child. The child had never actually been registered. Uh, Their birth had never been registered. And so this team, they were um, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. This was a few years ago. They took the child to be registered in Harare. They queued up for most part of the day because you tend to do that. If you think systems are slow in this country, you should try some others. 
and uh, they queued up for most part of the day, but during that time, they worked out a little secret between themselves, and when they came to register the child, they called her Precious. They changed her name, and perhaps changed her destiny. The names we're given matter, but the question is, how do we grow into them? So, Zachariah was called Remember Yahweh, and the truth is, he did. But just to uh, tell you a little bit about this story before we get into it, um, this is Luke chapter 1 verse 6. Uh, Simon's already read it. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's an extraordinary statement. Would you say it was true of you or anyone you've ever met? Would I say it was true of me? The truth is, I struggle with life. It has loads of ups and downs on it. Some days I feel like I'm ahead and doing well, and that normally is a little bit of arrogance that comes just before being crushed by my inability to live in line with my values the next, in the next hour or the next day. We all struggle. But when we read the Bible it seems to be also kind of black and white, doesn't it? You hear of this couple who were righteous in the sight of God, whatever that means, and they observed all of the Lord's commandments completely and decrees blamelessly. What on earth does that mean? We're going to explore that a little bit. I'm setting out some of these things so you can put them together in the, the bit that we do next. And... Then there's this thing where this story is so full of God speaking. Zechariah's in the temple and an angel pitches up and talks to him. And he's so much in conversation with his angel that the people are waiting outside and they're wondering what's happened to him. Back in those days, did God kind of turn up, you know, angelic and just line you up? It would have been a lot, it'd be a lot easier for me. In my life, I struggle to know what's right and what's wrong. I struggle with moral decisions. I struggle with whether to intervene or not to intervene, whether to make the phone call or not to make the phone call, whether to sit down and talk with someone about what I can see is their need in their life or not. I don't want to impose myself, but I don't want to be silent. How do I work all this out? How can I live generously? How do I live rightly and openly and honesty and how much honesty is too much and all of those questions that you are faced with every day but here we are with the bible it's also black and white angels turn up willy-nilly all over the place and just tell you what to do it makes it life was easier then why doesn't god do it now why doesn't God turn up with you in your lounge and boom, boom, this is what you do, Dave. Or, you know, Harry or Sid or Mary or, you know, Roe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world like that? Why is the New Testament so full of angels turning up to give direction at every moment and miracles happening, yet we're left to struggle through and make sense of the murkiness through the fog of life? We're going to talk about some of that. I hope. If I don't, it's just because I forgot. <laughs> the second half, well, the second verse, though, says this. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. That's, we're going to talk about that. 
Then, a little bit later on in the story, it says this. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel has just said, the messenger from God has just said, you're going to, your wife's going to fall pregnant, you're going to give birth to a son, you should call his name John, and he's going to be a forerunner of what God's going to do in this nation and how he's going to change everything around. So Zachariah says, well, you know, look, how can I be sure of all this? I'm, you know, I'm old, I'm decrepit, and my wife's well along in years. What a lovely way of talking about your wife. You know, she's well away. She was well along in years. The angel says to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent. This is really good news. And now you're going to be silent. And you're not going to be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So there you go. If you go back here, um, Zachariah is blameless, observing all of God's commands. But in a few verses' time, for the first time in his life, he's going to blow it. (laughs) Can you imagine that? He's been completely blameless forever, not had a bad thought ever. And now he just questions whether his wife can get pregnant because she's so old and he's so old. And because he questions, he's condemned to silence and the inability to speak. You know, we've got to think about all of these things, haven't we? Because if we don't, we go on believing these stories and everybody around us is going, you're all mad. You're all mad because you believe this stuff, but it doesn't make sense to us. How do we make sense of all these things? So I'd like to try that as well. Hopefully this all comes out in one go. Here's um, a story, um, another story of Zechariah. This story of Zechariah is really worth knowing because it adds bits that are not in the Bible. Um, This is a chapter, or a bit of a chapter, of the Quran. It's the Quran chapter 19. The Quran, by the way, oh, I shouldn't, I'll turn back because you'll be reading it and you won't be listening to this because it's out. The Quran is unlike the Bible. It's a terrible thing, in my view, that so many Christians will condemn Islam as a religion of darkness, whereas Christianity is a religion of light, but we're condemning what we don't know and we don't understand. The Quran is much shorter than the Bible. If you've not read it, you really should. Do you know? You really should. It's a wonderful book. And it's a book that offers lots of challenges, and it's a book that has lots of challenges within itself, because Islam, like Christianity, has to deal with the fact that its sacred texts can be used in a very hostile and aggressive and violent way, and can be interpreted that way. The Bible, as it happens, just by sheer fact that it's like at least three, four times as long as the Quran, has much more violence in it than the Quran does, actually. But both have to deal with these internal issues of, which the smart term for it is hermeneutics, interpretation. But there, the Quran is not arranged in books. It's some, forgive me if some of you will know this, but it's worth us all knowing it, isn't it? The Quran is arranged in chapters, not books. And 
chapter 19 of the Quran, there are over 100 chapters of the Quran, but chapter 19 of the Quran, near the beginning, is called, each chapter has a title. And chapter 19 of the Quran is called Mary. It's all about Mary. Now, here's another funny thing in our culture. Um, when Oasis began, I, I relate it to me, I tell it in a, an, an anecdotal sense, uh, but it's, it's a fact. When Oasis began taking on schools, we began taking on schools in communities that were Muslim communities or had many Muslims in. And um, so you got, we took on some schools that were struggling where you had white leaders in a school that was mostly Muslim kids. Does that make sense? You'd have that, that thing. And the white leaders would be, I suppose, secular humanists is what you call, you know, not religious. You know, they just like, like you know, I'm British, I'm not religious. And, um, and, uh, and so I, more than once I had this conversation. The conversation went, well, we're happy to become part of Oasis because we know you can help turn our school around, but we don't want your religion and your spirituality. And I used to say, well, why is that? And more than once I had this conversation, it was, well, because we can't do Christmas. I say, well, why can't you do Christmas nativities and all that, you know, big parts of primary school life, for instance. They'd say, well, because we've got all these Muslim kids here and we can't do Christmas because it's a Christian thing. And we can't talk about God because Muslims talk about Allah. Now, there's two big mistakes there. Mistake number one, there is a whole chapter in the Quran devoted to Mary's story who's perhaps honoured in Islam more than she is in Christianity. Second thing is, there are many churches in the world who call God Allah all of the time and of course Jesus called God Allah. And it's why we sing Alleluia. We say hallelujah means praise God. It sounds a lot more like praise Allah because Allah was the Arabic name for God and remains that. So you can go to the most charismatic of churches in Indonesia, for instance, and they sing praise songs to Allah. Allah is the Arabic name for God. So we get to this chapter um, I should tell you that I was in one of our schools and uh, eventually the school did a nativity. They didn't want to. You know, they always did some kind of uh, paganish story as a, as, a, as a play at Christmas. And eventually they got round to doing a, uh, a, a nativity. And uh, on the staff of this school uh, were many Muslim teachers. And I was there for this nativity and at the, with the with, you know, Mary and the angels and the shepherds and the, the, the uh, magi and all the rest of it. And at the end of the nativity, one of the Muslim teachers stood up on stage so happy. And she, this wasn't planned for. She just took the stage and she said, I am so happy. At last, this school is telling the story of Mary. Hooray! There's a huge place for Mary in the Quran. And this is from the chapter called Mary, but this is how it starts. Well, this is verse 2. Um, now, and and it, it says, Now, before we get going, a mention about the mercy of our Lord towards his servant Zechariah. So there's this little bit about Zechariah, and this is what it says. When he called on his Lord, he said, 
This is Zachariah speaking. My Lord, my bones have become feeble. My hair is aflame with grey. I wish my hair was grey. It's past that stage. Uh, my, my hair is aflame with grey. And never, Lord, have I been disappointed in my prayer to you. Now, later on in this chapter, it tells us that Zechariah was 92 when this happened. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Now, why you say, why am I interested in the story in the Quran? Because, of course, the verbal stories that existed around the story of Jesus that aren't contained in our four Gospels circulated in society, and some of those get written down. So from the Quran, we're told that Zechariah was the age of 92 when this all happens. So he's saying, my bones have become feeble and my hair is aflame with grey and never, Lord, have you ever disappointed uh, 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 my prayers. And I fear, this is what he says, and I fear for my dependents after me, my family, he means. My wife is barren, so grant me from yourself an heir that he may be an heir to me and, this is the important bit, to the house of Jacob and make him, my Lord, well-pleasing to you. So the story goes on. O Zechariah, says God, we give you good news of a son whose name is John, a name we have never given before. And then Zechariah says, my Lord, how can I have a son when my wife is barren and I've become decrepit in old age? Then God's, the angel speaks, it will be so, your Lord says. It's easy for me, I created you before when you were nothing. I can give you a son now. He said, my Lord, give me a sign. And the angel says, your, your sign is that you will not speak to the people for three nights straight. There's a difference between the Quran and the Bible there. And he came out to his people from the sanctuary and signaled to them, to praise morning and evening. This is the key verse, I think. And I fear for my dependents after me. My wife is barren, so grant me from yourself an heir, that he may be an heir to me into the house of Jacob and make him my Lord well-pleasing to you. I'd like to ask you a question. If Zechariah is 92, perhaps the Quran gets it wrong, perhaps he's only 82, but both the Bible and the Quran agree that he's getting on in years. He's old. He's decrepit. He says, I'm feeble. My hair's all grey. I've lost my youth. I've got no energy. I know a lot of 80-year-olds who've grown cynical over the years. I know a lot of older people who've given up. How many older people do you know who, oh, that'll never work. We tried that before. It'll never happen around here. Cool blow. You can't trust younger people. You can't rely on them. It will never happen. It will never work. But Zechariah has real reason to complain. First of all, he's a priest in the temple. Now, you will know if you've been listening to any of the podcasts we do or hear for some of these talks that this is the second temple. He's a second temple inhabitant, thinker. The second temple, the first was built by David, or designed by David and built by Solomon. But the second temple was built after the collapse of, um, uh, the collapse of Judah, after they'd been away in exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah return and they build this temple, but it never goes right from the start. And even though it gets built, 
The people are never free. Their land gets overrun time and time again. Different, the Persians arrive and the Greeks arrive and the Romans have arrived now and they all rule over Israel. And the people of Israel feel that though they're back in their land, they're still in exile, life isn't right. And the temple is never what it should be. Now, in the temple, the first temple was what was called the Shekinah. You've probably heard that word before. Before the first temple, there used to be a traveling temple. It was a huge tent. They called it the tabernacle. And as the people made their way out of Egypt across this barren desert, they'd set up the, they'd set up the tabernacle and they believed. They knew that God's presence was with them. They felt it so, so closely. And it was the same in the first temple. But when this second temple got built, they never felt that God's Shekinah was there. Why? Because they were never free to worship him as they wanted to. There were Romans everywhere. There were Greeks everywhere. Terrible things happened to their people. The second temple was not right. Now, if we'd have had the chance to read the whole chapter, you can read this when you get home, but don't read it now. At the end of the chapter, the last verses of the chapter, Zechariah prays a prayer when his son John is born and his prayer is all about how God is going to in the end through this son that he's been given and the way that he points he's going to be a prophet to something else God is going to turn around history for the Jewish people and he is going to bring salvation to them but here's the here's the thing at this point Zachariah has given his whole professional life his whole working life he was born into the priesthood from his childhood, he's been a priest. He's been trained for the priesthood. He's now 92 years old. And he's longing for this incredible thing to happen. And it doesn't happen. He's been longing for freedom and it never comes. If you are 92 and the freedom you've prayed for and hoped for and longed for hasn't happened, you might end up pretty bitter. You might end up pretty angry. You might end up pretty cynical. You might end up thinking, it's no good praying, nothing ever changes round here in my life and our country. You might think that. Plus, his wife is barren. In those days, not to have an heir was a real put down. To not have an heir was like a terrible shame for this woman, his wife, who he loves. And for him, he has no heir. So he's 92. He's prayed for a son all these years. He's prayed for freedom for all these years. And nothing has happened. You can imagine this man being bitter. You can imagine this man being frustrated and angry. You can imagine this man saying, Oh, when I was young, I used to believe that God could intervene. But I'm old and I know it doesn't happen that way. You can imagine this man being disappointed with his lot in life, with the cards he got dealt, with the hand that is his. Why has this happened to me? Nothing's happened. I've served you all my life, God, and still this temple is barren, and still my wife is barren, and I've got no heir, and I don't believe in prayer, and it's never going to happen. I think behind the words of the New Testament, we have to read the emotion. It's clear when the Bible says, when Luke says that, that, that Zachariah and Elizabeth were blameless, that doesn't mean that they weren't chewed up with emotions. It just means they're going in the right direction. Because here is this old man at 92, and instead of giving up, he's still praying. 
And I fear, he says in his prayer, it's a real prayer. It's not, God bless Israel and all who sail in her. It's, I fear, I fear God. I fear for my dependence after me. My wife is barren. I'm 92. We're finished, we're through. But I'm still relying on you. So grant me from yourself an heir. But he's not just thinking selfishly or in terms of his family. Look what he says next. That he may be an heir to me and to the house of Jacob because his name is Zechariah. Remember Yahweh. And he is staying true to that. At the age of 92, he's still living out his name. Remember Yahweh. He's still doing that through all the struggle. So make him, Lord, well-pleasing to you. How do we ensure that we're in the same place? How do we ensure that we don't get bitter? Because it's not only 80 years old that get bitter. It's 70-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds who, who slowly turn into a nothing ever happens around here. How many people give up on church, give up on God, give up on spirituality because stuff goes wrong? I believed in God until I had a miscarriage. I believed that God was on my side until my marriage broke down. I believed in God until I was made redundant, stuff went wrong. I believed, but prayer doesn't work. How is this man still in this teachable, pliable place? Let me show you a picture. It's only a picture. This is a picture. It's an illustration of a human brain. Our brains are wired with millions of neural connections. I've talked a little bit about uh, this before, and I realize that some of you are expert in this field. But it's really important that we understand this stuff. Why could Zachariah be so positive when stuff around him is so wrong. It's because of the way that his brain was wired. Our brains are being wired and rewired all of our lives, constantly. The wonderful thing about living in the 21st century is we now know why things happen. You know when you get up in the morning and it's not, you haven't got to go to work, but you get, in, it, 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 you, um, you get into exactly the same routine. When I used to live outside of London, I don't drive so much now, but when I used to live outside of London, on a Saturday morning, um, Cornelia would say to me, you know, go down the shops and buy this or whatever, and I'd get in my car and I'd find that I was halfway to the office in London before I suddenly, ah, I'm not going to work today. You know, we do, do, you, do you relate to that? There's stuff that you just do. You come out of your door and you turn the same way that you always do to go to work, even though it's Saturday and you wanted to go to the corner shop. Why do you do that? It's because we now know that you've developed what's called a neural pathway inside your brain. Every brain, your brain, has three types of neurons in it. Only three types of neurons. First type of neurons you have, you've heard of. They're called motor neurons. They are the electrical connections in your brain because your brain is run by electricity that move your body. That's why motor neuron disease 
is named as it is because the neurons that provide the motor for your, your, your body begin to break down and disconnect and your body won't work as it used to. Motor neurons. The second kind of neurons that anyone has are what are called sensory neurons. Sensory neurons, those are the connections in your brain linked to your senses, touch, taste, smell. And the third kind of uh, neurons are called interneurons. And what happens throughout your life and my life, it's happening to you now one way or the other. You're either bored stiff with what I said, I'm saying, and your brain's changing. Or you're engaged with what I'm saying and your brain's changing. But your brain is changing at this very moment, whether you're 90 or whether you're 9. What happens in any human brain we, know now, we now know is that more you do things, the more, um, the more connections you make. That's what these, um, these interconnectors, these interneurons do. Our brains are always under construction. So it happens to a young child. So a young child, a young baby, smiles uh, to uh, uh, her, his mother or dad, and when they smile, they get picked up and they get told they're beautiful and they get cuddled. And so that child is making a neural connection. Actually, in a young child, there are millions of these things happening all the time. And the neural pathway connection is being made and it says, smile. Because when you smile, you get picked up and cuddled. Do you see? A connection is made. Now, in life, the more you walk a pathway, the more you create a pathway. So you see it in the park. I go running around Kennington Park, and there's so many people that run the same route as me across the grass that the grass has disappeared, and there is now a clear pathway you know, across there. So even if I was running and I couldn't remember where to go, I just run round the brown bit instead of the grassy bit. A pathway has been made. When we keep repeating something, a pathway is made stronger and stronger and stronger. So the first time the little baby is picked up and cuddled because they smile, um, a bit of a pathway is made. The second time it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. When you reward a child with, you were really good, here's a sweet, that's an obesity recipe. Because how many of you sat here when you're feeling down you have a sweet or a biscuit why do you want a biscuit or a sweet or a chocolate when you're feeling down how did that happen it's a neural pathway you've developed it over the years it's the way that it's turned out with you just like the physical route that we might travel that's how our brains operate most like a computer. But our brains are far more advanced than any computer ever developed, even by the Apple Corporation. That's how our brains work. Neural pathways are essential, and our brains are changing all the time. They're always under construction. I'm learning good habits and bad habits. When Andy Murray gets a tennis ball fired at him at 120 miles an hour, I happen to have uh, had a chance to go to um, one of the schools where Andy 
uh, was taught. And I went there, I was very fortunate, with Tim Henman once and um, it, it's school. And I stood at one end of the court, and these were only 18-year-olds playing, but they're all in this tennis gang. And I stood at one end of the court, and these 18-year-olds were serving the ball. It was incredible. So they're not serving as fast as Andy Murray would serve, but as the ball was fired over the net, I could hardly see it, let alone move to it, let alone control it, let alone return it. That's not natural to be able to do that. But of course it is if you've worked on your neural pathway. From the age of four or five, if you've been playing tennis, you learn to see things that are not seen. Um, Jill, who's just leaving with someone. No, Jill, do go. Say yeah. <laughs> Jill and I were talking. Um, Jill and I were talking uh, just earlier this weekend, and Jill was in a school, and she told me this story. Forgive me swearing. I'm going to swear as part of this story only once, right? Very seriously swear, right? But if I don't, you won't understand it. Jill was telling me that um, uh, uh, just um, a little while ago. She was in um, a, a, a unit with kids with really difficult emotional and behavioral um, issues. These people haven't been loved. Their neural pathways are all over the place. Do, do you know? They're, they, they're struggling. Now, I should say uh, that our brains are, you know when I said you can keep learning? Our brains are plastic. It's called neuroplasticity. Every bad habit you've learned, you can unlearn, but it takes time because you've just got to make a new pathway, cut one pathway down and make new connections. Does that make sense? Anyway, Jill's in this school and, and I know these guys and there's, uh, there's um, a teacher there who's decided to put up a Christmas tree. And she's asked um, her dad to come in and deliver the tree. So he comes into this unit, which is filled with wonderful kids who've never been told that they're loved. And he brings in the Christmas tree. And he sets up the Christmas tree with his daughter. And he helps decorate the whole thing, put the lights on, etc. And he's having this conversation with his daughter that he clearly loves. And he's, she's instructing him where to put it, what to do, how to decorate it, what looks best. And he's doing all these things in a conversation. But some of these kids are watching what goes on. Anyway, he puts up the tree. He does what his daughter asks him. And then he gives her a hug and he kisses her and he leaves. Half an hour later, one of the kids went up to her and he said, this is the swear word, he said, doesn't your dad tell you to fuck off sometimes? Neural pathways destroyed, formed wrongly, just like the web is always under construction, and so I know nothing about building a website. But the human brain is far more complex than the most complex website will ever be. Zachariah, at the age of 92, is still living out what it means to remember 
Yah. Remember Yahweh. He has come to inhabit his name. And instead of being a bitter old man who's twisted because stuff has gone wrong in his life, at the age of 92, he's still open. He's still longing. He's still hopeful. He still has dreams. He still wants good stuff to happen. Instead of cursing life because it didn't run right for him, because it hasn't run right for any of us, including you, your life has not run perfectly. But we have two responses. How do some people manage to respond well and others not so well? Because they practiced habitually making the neural connections in their brain that create the right pathways. Paul sums it up like this, as you know, in the New Testament in Romans. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Your brain is plastic. It can be renewed. It can be remodeled. You're not stuck in a negative frame. When we put up this title, Searching for God, Longing and Hope and Searching, maybe you're tempted to say, but I'm past all that. No, you're not, unless you say you are. And then you're stuck. That's why um, we, uh, Jill does this writing on the back of the news, sheet, uh, the news sheet every Sunday of the year, or pretty much every Sunday of the new year. We concentrate on one of our nine habits. You'll see this round the South Bank School and in Johanna if you go across and in all our schools. This isn't for kids, it is for kids, but it's for us as well. To be compassionate, to be honest, to be self-controlled, to be hopeful, to be considerate, to be humble, to be patient, to be forgiving, to be joyful. These are Oasis Nine Habits. We teach these to every kid in every class in every school that Oasis runs. We put them on the back of the news sheet and ask questions about them week after week after week to take away and reflect. We teach these to our junior leaders, our middle leaders, our aspiring senior leaders, our senior leaders, our aspiring regional leaders, our aspiring national leaders, our national leaders, our global leaders. We concentrate on this time and time again because we, I I know that unless I practice it, I will not become it. To be self-controlled, they're all, by, by the way, the, the nine habits are the fruit of the Spirit, the way that Paul sums up the character of Jesus. To be self-controlled is not easy for me. I'm 63 and I'm struggling with being self-controlled. Sometimes I do well, sometimes I do badly, but I know that my brain has been wired and some places it's wired right and some places it's wired wrong. And when I have a bad reaction, it's not just because I have a bad reaction, some kind of magic. It's because I've allowed myself to develop that way or perhaps I've been crushed that way or oppressed that way or abused that way. But I know that I'm on this journey forward. Every time you read the story of uh, Zachariah from now on, read the story of a wonderful 92-year-old man who is still longing, still hoping, still searching, still has vision for what God will do. And when you get home this morning or this evening, read the poem that he writes, the song of Zechariah that comes at the end of that chapter. It's wonderful. And ask yourself, as I have to ask myself, when I'm 92, will I still be singing this song, this song of hope? So as we finish, searching for God, your story of longing, expectation, and hope. Before we sing, I'd like us to pause. I'd like us to...
pray, I'd like to leave a space for some silence. I think Rachel's going to come and simply play um, the piano to us. The question is this, what motivates you? What drives you? What are you searching for? What are you hoping for? What are you longing for? And the biggest question is, what are you going to do about it so that you build those pathways in your brain that bring it to be? Let's pray. What's your longing, your expectation, your hope? How are you going to work at bringing that about? What habit are you going to overcome by working to change it? Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We know that living Jesus' way is a constant pilgrimage, constantly following, constantly learning, constantly rewiring our direction, constantly navigating difficulties so you work in us as well as around us. We thank you for this example of this man who against all the stuff that happened to him in his life was still listening still hopeful and we thank you for the way that after all of this time and waiting you broke into his life in ways that he could have never imagined be with us speak to us help us to listen to you rewire us reshape us renew our minds we don't want to be conformed to anything other than jesus this is our prayer. Amen. So you see, it turns out that listening to God is something that happens internally. Whether Nehemiah, uh, whether um, Zachariah couldn't speak for three days or six months, nine months, who knows? Was it because God was punishing him? <laughs> no, I guess. It was just the sheer shock to his system, the hopefulness. I remember, actually, when I was told I could become the leader of this church years ago. I was in a meeting with a friend of mine called Jeff Lucas, and, uh, and I lost my ability to speak. And Jeff said, what's wrong with you? Are you out of breath? And I never did tell him. I was just so excited about the possibility of what I thought could happen here. That's why I couldn't speak. Until this day, Jeff still, still laughs with me about the time when I was dumb 
and I couldn't say anything. It only lasted for about 20 minutes. <laughs> but it was that internal joy that robbed me of the ability to speak. I think that that's what's happening to Zechariah as he trusts God. We're always being rewired. We're plastic. Keep working at it. Keep giving.